Wilder Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're now going to take our attention and turn it to God's Word, to a particular section of God's Word that we are studying uh, this month of August, and that is to Galatians chapter 5 in a series that we began last Sunday called New Power. All 2021, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians and how it connects to our lives today, and we've seen that Jesus has made something new and something normal for us. He has made a way for us to have a relationship with God through His saving work. And part of that saving work is not just what happens to our sin in the past, but also what God gives us in the presence through the power of the Holy Spirit that He has given to us to dwell in our lives in an abiding way. And all month long, we're looking at Paul talking about the Holy Spirit that God has given to us in Galatians 5. So today we're going to be in part two of that series as we look at Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. Just three short verses, but three very important verses for us to look at today. But before we do that, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're going to go to lunch today with five of your closest friends. So I want you just to think about who those would be. I want you to imagine them. And then I want you to imagine that you go to lunch and you're sitting around this table. People that you can be honest with. I don't care if they live here or not. It's a dream. So just imagine who they might be. You gather around the table. And let's just say again, for the sake of argument in our dream, that each of you has just inherited $10 million. Now, I don't mean collectively, I mean each of you individually has collected $10 million. And your topic of conversation at lunch today is, what are you going to do with your $10 million? And so one of your friends speaks first. And they say, well, with my $10 million, I'm going to buy a car. And you're like, wow, that's a nice car for $10 million. They talk about this car, that car, and how exciting it's going to be. And you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then the next friend speaks and says, with my $10 million, I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to go to this place and that place and the other place. Fly first class, one of those around the world tickets. Stay in the best accommodations. I might even buy a house in every place where we stop just because we can. You think, wow, that is really something. Then the next person says, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a house. No, 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 an estate. The most amazing place you've ever seen. And this is how I'm going to spend my $10 million. Well, after they're going through those things, you're, you're thinking, I'm going to answer in a moment. How am I going to answer this question? Then the friend just before you speaks and says, well, with my $10 million, I'm going to start a foundation for homeless children. And now it's your turn. How are you going to answer? Now, before you might have thought, wow, that sounds pretty great. A car and vacations and a house. Maybe with $10 million, I'll do all of those things. I'm going to have it all. But then after your friend says this, you, you, you stutter in how you would respond. Now, why would you do that? Well, maybe you're thinking because of guilt. And that's possible. But also maybe you're thinking that because deep down inside of you, in a place that God has, has put within you, you know that your life is not ultimately about you. Ultimately, you know that you have been created for something more than just satisfying your own personal desires. 
You've been made for something far greater than that. Well, friends, today we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5. And it's no hypothetical situation. It's our Heavenly Father who has given to us incredible riches, far greater than $10 million. Now, that won't show up in your bank account, but it has shown up in your hearts. As the God who created all things has done amazing things for you in Christ. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with your share? All too often, we respond by thinking about how it will benefit us. But deep down, don't you know that you have been saved and you have been blessed for something greater than yourself? Today, we're going to see what that is. As Paul answers this question in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Now, in these these three verses, Paul really is is answering in a form a question that he often got. Paul would show up in different places, different cities around the Roman Empire, and he would preach this message of salvation through Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus one more thing, but Jesus alone. Faith in Christ is what leads to your salvation. And everywhere Paul would preach that, religious people would come behind him. And when they would, they would look and they would say, Paul, you can't say that. You can't tell people that they shouldn't live a life to impress God. If you tell them that salvation is through Jesus and what Jesus has done, then they will live a bad life. And every time Paul heard that, he said, no, 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 you are misunderstanding me. I'm not encouraging them to live a bad life. I'm not encouraging them to live a sinful life. I'm encouraging them to live a different life, the life that they were created for. And that life is described in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. If you've got a Bible, turn there. We're going to spend our time in these three verses. It's important for us to think about what they mean. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says this. Paul continues his letter to his friends in Galatia, and he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, in these three verses, we're going to see two things today that will encourage us and remind us of what we have been created for. Well, what are those things? Well, the first thing we see is in verse 13, and it's this great truth. We have been freed from sin, not freed to sin. We've been freed from sin, not freed to sin. In other words, what Jesus has done for us is not set the table so that we can live a crazy life pleasing only ourselves. But what Jesus has done for us is he has set us free from sin's awful effects and given us an opportunity to live the life that we were created to live. We are freed from sin, not freed to sin. Now, where do we see that in these verses? Well, throughout chapter 5, Paul is talking about freedom. We saw this last week in the first verse, chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
And then he explains what he meant by that in the verses that follow. But when we come to verse 13, he returns to this topic of freedom. And he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. We might say in our vernacular, you were called to freedom, church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is something that God has given you. And it could be summed up in the word freedom. God has given you freedom. Well, that ought to have us ask the question, well, hey, freedom from what? Well, what kind of a freedom are we called to? Well, it's freedom ultimately from sin. And we see that as we look at a number of the things that we have seen throughout not only Paul's letter to the Galatians, but also if we were to do a survey of the New Testament, we would see a freedom from a number of different things. The first thing we might think of is because of what Jesus has done for us, if we have placed our faith and trust in him, we are free from the guilt of sin. And that happens because we are forgiven. If we have trusted in Christ, God looks at you and he says, you are forgiven. I don't care what you have done, you are forgiven in Christ. So relationally, we are square with God. We've been freed from the guilt of sin. But not only that, we've also been freed from the penalty of sin. Not only has God said you're forgiven, but also God has taken care of the penalty that our sins deserve. We might think of it in terms of the verse that says, the wages of sin is what? Death. Because of our sin, there is a payment, a penalty that is due. But what did Jesus do? Jesus came in, died on the cross for our sins. The biblical word for this is the word atonement. Jesus made a payment sufficient for our sins. And so not only have we been freed from the guilt of sin, but also the penalty has been paid for our sins through the atonement. But if we are in Christ, there's more freedom even than these things. There's also a freedom from the power of sin. Now, what I mean by that is, if we are in Christ, not only are we forgiven, not only has the penalty been paid, but also God has sent his spirit to reside within us that gives us an opportunity to be empowered to live the life that we were called to live and not to just continue to sin and to sin and to sin. God has freed us from sin's necessary rule in our lives. We've been freed from the power of sin. So we've been freed from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, and the power of sin. That's the freedom that we've been called to. But throughout Galatians, we've also been reminded of this. We've also been freed from the burden of the law. The Old Testament law ultimately points out our deficiencies. It points out our sin. And it can be like an oppressive weight upon our backs if we try to use that law to justify us to God. But if we are in Christ, we've been freed from the law as something that lays on our backs and pushes us down, but God has placed his spirit within us to buoy us and to support us from the inside out. So in Christ, we have been called to freedom. Can I get an amen to that? That's exciting what the Lord has done for us. It's amazing what he has provided for us. It is for freedom that we have been called. But what do we do in response to that freedom? Knowing that we have been freed from the guilt of sin and the penalty of sin and the power of sin, sin's necessary rule, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do with our freedom? Well, Paul makes this statement in verse 13. He says, it's possible for us who have been freed from the guilt and the penalty and the power of sin, 
those of us who have been freed from the burden of the law, it is possible for us to leave the enslavement that we had in the past and to become enslaved again to something or someone else. And that something or someone else, he tells us, is our flesh. He says, given the freedom that Jesus has given you, do not become enslaved to yourselves. The flesh is, is Bible speak for that part of us that we've inherited. It goes all the way back to our great, 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 granddad, Adam, right? And it's come all the way down through time to us. We've inherited this disposition for self-centeredness. We're born with it. Babies have it. Adults have it. And even after we are forgiven and saved in Christ, that flesh still remains until God takes us and glorifies us in heaven. So there's a part of us, this old address of our lives, that has this propensity for self-centeredness. And what Paul says is, since we have been freed from sin's necessary rule, do not take that freedom and become enslaved once again to yourselves. You were not built to live for you. See, we often think that what would really be awesome is if we just lived our lives for us. Freedom means doing whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. I'm going to do it my way. We have songs about this. Frank Sinatra sings about this. John Bon Jovi sings about this. I mean, there are songs that we sing about we want to do it my way, and that's what is best. But the one who created us looks at us and says, your best is not your way. And given what God has done for us in Christ, we are called now to repent and to turn away from our way to a different way, to his way. Don't allow our flesh to be a staging ground for sin. Don't allow the freedom that we have in Christ to be an opportunity for sin to to take root in our lives. This is something that is talked about often by a number of the New Testament authors. Jesus himself says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So even if you have been freed from the power of sin, even if you have been freed from the guilt of sin and of the penalty of sin, if you go and can lay down your lives at the altar of your selfishness, you will find yourself enslaved to yourself. You will find yourself enslaved to sin. And that is not the way that you were created to live. That's not your best life now. Titus 3.3 makes this statement. Paul says to his buddy Titus, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. There's a way to live that has us at the center. But whether we are redeemed or not, if we live our lives right now with us at the center, it's not the life that we were created for. It's not the life that we were recreated for in Christ. God has something better for you. God has something better for me. And I think we know it, don't we? We know it. We know we were created for something more than just living for my own pleasures and my own passions. 
John Stott says it this way. He says, there are many such slaves in our society today. They proclaim their freedom with a loud voice. They speak of free love and a free life, but in reality, they are slaves to their own appetites to which they give free reign simply because they cannot control them. Their life is out of control. They are being beat down by their sin, and they call it freedom because it makes them feel better. And I say they, we could put me, we could put you. It's all too common for us to equate our freedom with doing whatever we want, whenever we want it, even though that places us back under the dominion and power and enslavement to something that does not want our best, to something that actually wants to harm us. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Just to take this and make it maybe a little more practical for just a moment. Take purity, for example. Will God accept us into heaven and save us on the basis of how pure our thoughts are? Well, the answer to that is no. Because our thoughts are never going to be perfectly pure, and we still would need Christ to die for us. But just because our salvation is not found in how pure our thoughts are, the question is, do we then take our eyes and have them gaze at pornography all the time? The answer to that is absolutely not. Why become enslaved to your flesh and to your lust and to your passions? Once again, that's not the life that we were created for. Take the issue of of greed and possessions. Will our generosity be what leads to our salvation? The answer to that is no. But the flip side question we ought to ask is, well, just because my salvation is not dependent upon my generosity, is it really in my best interest? Is it really the life that I've been created for to view everything that I touch as mine and not have a desire to be generous or to share with others? You see, we are not to allow our freedom to become an opportunity for our flesh. So we're not to live for ourselves, but who are we to live for? Well, ultimately what we see is Paul says, you're not to live with yourself at the center, but he gives a surprising twist and he says, instead you're to live with someone else at the center. All of us, you are to live your lives with one another in your view that you would be oriented towards a life that would serve and love and bless others, not just yourself. That's what, what, what Paul says here. Now, we'll talk as the message goes on about what exactly that means, but it's important for us to see that this is not a life that is ultimately lived for us. It's a life that is lived in service to others. Stott, again, helps us understand this. He says, Christian freedom is freedom to approach God without fear, not freedom to exploit my neighbor without love. It's freedom to approach God without fear, not freedom to exploit my neighbor without love. It's as if God looks down on us and says, are you in Christ? Have you trusted in my son and the sacrifice that he gave for your sins? If we say yes, then God says, guess what? We are square. The vertical relationship is good. It's solid. So what do we do now? Well, it's as though God says, I don't want you to spend the rest of your time just trying to make sure this is right. This is right. 
Now I want you to look this way horizontally, and I want you to love others in my name. Wiersbe helps us understand this also. He says, Christian liberty is not a license to sin, but it's an opportunity to serve. It's not living our lives with us at the center. It's living our lives in service to others. And so what we've seen so far is that we have been freed from sin, not freed to sin. But there's another really important concept that we need to see inside of these verses. And that is this. We are to have a fulfilling love life. Now, somebody just blushed. So let me add another word to help us understand this even more. Have a fulfilling love kind of life. Have a fulfilling love kind of life. Uh, Live out a life that fulfills and fills up a true definition of God's love for all of those around you, especially those inside of the household of faith. This is what we have been called to do, to, to have a fulfilling love kind of life. Now, where do we see that in these verses? We see it in verse 14 and 15. Now, our Bible is a translation of the the Greek New Testament. And so there's a Greek phrase that lies behind the English translations that we have. And our English translations are amazing. But there are times when those translations, um, there's some decisions that interpreters have to make on what word they should use to translate a Greek word. We have one of those challenges uh, in, in translation in verse 14. He says, the whole law is summed up in one word. Now, this phrase that is said here to sum up is translated this way in the New International Version, the NIV. Um, and it's a, a fair translation of that phrase. It's, it's an acceptable use of that word. Um, and we'll see in a minute that there's another translation and another way to translate that word that, that also has a lot of merit. I think in this particular instance, Paul actually is using a word that has a couple of different meanings on purpose to actually emphasize both ideas. But what do we mean when he says that the whole law is summed up in one word? Well, what he says is he says that all of the commands of Scripture, all of the commands in our Bible could be summarized in a single statement. Now, if I were to come to you and ask you, I'll say, Trevor, what is the the one command that would sum up all of the other commands? How would you answer that? You don't have to answer it right now. I won't really put you on, 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 uh, on point for that. But if I were to walk around the room and I were to say, what is the one command? Somebody comes up to you and says, what is the one command? How would you answer that? Well, my guess is that many of us would answer what? Love who? Love God, right? Love the Lord your God. And we would, we would make that statement on good authority, right? The Old Testament talks of, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, Jesus himself, when asked what the greatest commandment was, made that statement. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when we think of how we would sum up the commands... We would answer it, love the Lord your God. And yet here, he doesn't answer it, the love the Lord your God. He says, if we were to sum up all of the commands of Scripture, we would sum them up in one word, and that is to love who? To love your neighbor as yourself. So in what way is that statement truthful? Because the Bible doesn't lie, and it doesn't contradict itself. So what is the correct answer? 
Well, it's helpful for us to go back and look at some other verses. One place that we need to go is to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, where this statement is made, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I know many of you might have not realized that 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 phrase actually has its roots in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so this idea goes way back. But again, when Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? He answers in Mark 12, verse 30 and 31 this way. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus, in very close proximity, takes this command to love the Lord your God, and he very quickly, right behind it, accompanies it with the statement of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, it looks this way in our English Bibles, but it's actually even closer when we look at the original languages, because it's as if he says, the second is just like it. The second is right alongside it. There's really no way for us to to love God and not love those who are created in his image. So that if we are loving those created in his image and we are followers of Jesus, then we will be both loving God and loving others. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful. When you think of a friend of yours that might be getting married, and if your friend has children and they're marrying someone who comes to them and says, I love you and I want to marry you, but I hate your children. If you are their friend and you are their good friend, what would you say to them? You would say, get out of that relationship. Why? Because there's no way for them to love you and hate your kids. Because your kids are an expression of you. In a very similar way, there is no way for us to say, I love God, but I hate people who are created in the image of God. We just can't do it. If we truly have the vertical established, if we truly love God, it will translate to the way that we treat people who are created in the image of God. And that's the point. So that Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, he says, hey, you're going to follow me and we're going to be together forever. But he says, Here's what I need you to know. I'm going to give you a new command. And that command is this. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you, so also you love one another. See, we're familiar with the golden rule. The golden rule is what? Do unto others as they would do unto you. This is the platinum rule, I've heard it called. Do unto others as Jesus has done unto us. Jesus said, you want to know what what, what the new command is? You want to know how I'm going to summarize what it looks like for you to follow me, it means that you're going to love one another. And then he underscores it by saying this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, friends, the hallmark of somebody who is rightly connected to God vertically is that horizontally they're loving their neighbor as themselves. Now, When I say that, you ought to be asking yourself a question. Okay, so what is love? What is it? Well, Tony Evans helps us understand what love is with this definition. He says, biblical love is the decision to compassionately, righteously, and sacrificially seek the well-being of another. What what is love biblically? 
It's not just an emotion. It's not just a warm fuzzy. But it's, it's actually a decision that we make to have compassion for those around us. We, we decide, I love them, so I'm going to have compassion for them. I'm going to care about them. My heart is going to be moved for them. And it's going to be moved for them in the direction of righteousness. Not just any old direction, not just some generic emotion, but I want God's best for them. I want all of the fullness of God's righteous standards to be lived out inside of their lives. I'm going to love them in that direction. And I'm going to sacrifice my privileges, my pleasure, in order that another might be developed and might grow. That's what it means to love. That's what it means to love biblically. And this is what it looks like for us to truly be connected to God. To truly love God will be to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we're right vertically, horizontally, it will be felt. Now, it's helpful for us to to see that play out in maybe one of the most prominent chapters of the Bible on the topic of love, and that is 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you are married. How many of you had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding? Anybody? More than one hand just went up, so that's good. Uh, So this is a, a prominent chapter. It's appropriate for us to read this at weddings. Why? Because chapter 13 of... 1 Corinthians is a chapter about horizontal level love, being patient and kind with one another. But before the Apostle Paul ever gets really rolling on that long list of love is, he has an introduction to that chapter. And in the first three verses of that chapter, he goes through a number of things, and he mentions a number of things that would have a vertical component to it. And he says, in this vertical component to all of these things, if you excel in that area, but you still don't love your neighbor then it's not going to be good for you. That's how important love is. He says in verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of angels, but I have not love, then I'm just a noisy gong. If I have prophetic power so that I understand all mysteries, but I don't love you, then I have nothing. If I have faith to be able to move a mountain, if I have miracle-working power at my disposal and I'm able to do them in, in, at, at call, Paul says, but I don't love you, I've got nothing. Paul says, if I take all of my possessions and I give them all away to the cause, but I don't love you, then I gain nothing. And even if I go all the way to giving my life to be martyred for the faith, but I don't love you, and I gain nothing. How important is love for the Christian? It's, 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 it's essential. It's not optional. And it motivates the actions that we do. And so Paul says, in, in one sense, the law might be summed up in the statement of loving your neighbor as yourself. But there's a second translation of that phrase that we need to look at. And that translation is the one that I read at the beginning of the service. It's the the word that is in the ESV and the New American Standard Bible. And it is the translation of the phrase, instead of summed up, but fulfilled in one word. That the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and that one word is that we would love our neighbor as ourself. Now, what does he mean when he says that it is fulfilled? What he means is, if we truly love our neighbor 
as ourself. If we truly love as Jesus loved, then that love will be filled up with the righteousness of God. It's not just an empty emotion, but it's going to be filled up with wanting God's best for you. That means that it might lead you to rebuke someone. It might lead you to challenge someone. It might lead you to call somebody to turn and repent away from a direction they're headed in their life because it's a direction that is headed in the direction of destruction. A fulfilling love life is filled up with the righteousness of God. And the love that is talked about here is filled with God's righteousness. Now, in order to understand that a little more, we need to look at a parallel passage. And that parallel passage is found in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul is talking and he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment is summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. He says that phrase a couple of times, so we see the connection to the passage that we see in Galatians 5. What Paul is saying is, if if I am truly loving you, then I will live out God's commandments concerning you. Paul would say, it's impossible for me to commit adultery and love you. Now, that would be true of you with your spouse. It's impossible for you to love your spouse and commit adultery. I don't mean in general. I mean, but in that action, that action is not a loving action to commit adultery against your spouse. But in the same way, it's also not a loving action to commit adultery with someone who's not your spouse. You're not loving your lover as you commit adultery because it's not a fulfilling kind of a love. He says the same thing about murder. There's no way for me to love you and kill you. That's obvious. He says there's no way for me to love you and steal from you. Right? I I can't say I love Phil and Muriel and then steal money from their bank account because I think it's better off in my bank account. I just love you that much. I want to take your money, right? That's not loving. Coveting. There's no way to to, to love your neighbor and think that whatever they have, their boat, their car, their house, their life, their kids, whatever, is better off in your hands, not theirs. That's not loving. That's not wanting what is God's best for them. That's living with you at the center of your life. See, the fulfilling love of the law is filled up with the righteous standard of God. And we need to remember that very truth. You know, it's interesting when we think about this concept of having a fulfilling love life, it's, it's again, it's helpful for us to look at another picture inside of Scripture. This one comes from John in 1 John chapter 4. He says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, all too often, friends, we want to make the Christian life just something vertical so that it can be nondescript. But the reality is there's no way for us to be right vertically and treat those around us wrong. If we are right vertically, it will translate to the way that we care for those around us, and our motivation will be our love for them. And so... He calls us to this action. 
But he ends these verses with this great phrase. He says the opposite. If you don't live with others as who you're serving, if you live your life just with you at the center, what will happen? Well, what will characterize your relationships is not love, but instead it's biting and devouring and consuming. I think the funny part about this is that Paul said that before the invention of Facebook or Twitter. But what it reminds us is this. Our flesh, which has been with humanity since the beginning, our flesh is where sin springs from. All electronics have done is amplify it. This microphone doesn't create my voice. It just amplifies it so you can hear it. Your screen and your Twitter and your Facebook or whatever it is, it doesn't create your heart. It just reveals it. Well, if you've ever typed something and you look at it on the screen and it just repulses even you, it's just a challenge. If we live our lives with us at the center, it's different than how God wants us to live. How are we going to invest the resources that God has given to us? Blow them on us or serve others? What does it look like to love one another? I want to end just by asking you the question. Who are you living for? Who are you living for? Who are you living for, really? All too often, friends, if I were to give you an honest assessment, I would tell you that all too often I'm living for me. I may be the only one, but I'm guessing that I'm not. Who are you living for? If we're going to live for God, that is absolutely the right answer, but don't let it stop there. Don't just have that be the icing and there is no cake underneath it. If we truly are saying that we are going to live for God, then that will absolutely show up in the way that we treat one another. So let's serve. Let's serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's serve them in tone. What's our tone towards our brothers and sisters in Christ? Over the last 18 months, you know what our tone often is? We got our dukes up all the time, right? Somebody comes, we're ready to counter. That's just, that's the way that we're living our lives right now. And if this describes your tone towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, let me just challenge you that maybe your application today is just to do this. And maybe not just do that, but maybe do this instead. That we might welcome the embrace of our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that our tone might change towards one another. But not only our tone, but our direction. Not just are we going to have this gloss of love out there and it's just free, it means whatever you want it to mean, but I mean, are we really going to love people and that we're going to encourage them to live not just any old life, but the life that God created them to live? That's what love really looks like. That's what a fulfilling love life looks like. And are we going to love in rhythm? Not just every once in a while. Oh, I remember that time when I, when I loved somebody back in college. That was awesome. I remember that time when I loved somebody on my street. I remember that. No, I mean, regular rhythm of our lives. One of the great things when we come here to Wildwood, we, we serve even on Sundays. Not because this is the sum total of our service, but because we're still in rhythm when we come here. We serve because that's who we are. 
We serve because we love others. In Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this truth. Thank you that that we gather today as people who have been changed by your grace. Lord, may we not retreat back from the freedom that you've given us into a life of selfishness. May we live our lives not for us, but may we live them for you. And may that be demonstrated in the way that we serve others. We pray these things asking your grace to empower. We walk in that direction. In Jesus' name, and everyone say, amen.